Chapter 13 of The Door Through Space This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall The Door Through Space by Marion Zimmer Bradley Chapter 13 I stumbled over steps, took a jolting stride downward, and found myself in a dim room jammed with dark figures, human and non-human. The figures swayed in the darkness, chanting in a dialect not altogether familiar to me, a monotonous, wailing chant, with a single recurrent phrase, Kamaina, Kamaina. It began on a high note, descending in weird chromatics to the lowest tone the human ear could resolve. The sound made me draw back. Even the dry-towners shunned the orgiastic rituals of Kamaina. Earthmen have a reputation for getting rid of the more objectionable customs, by human standards, on any planet where they live. But they don't touch religions, and Kamaina, on the surface anyhow, was a religion. I started to turn round and leave, as if I had inadvertently walked through the wrong door, but my conductor hauled on my arm, and I was wedged in too tight by now to risk a roughhouse. Trying to force my way out would only have called attention to me, and the first of the Secret Service maxims is, when in doubt, go along, keep quiet, and watch the other guy. As my eyes adapted to the dim light, I saw that most of the crowd were Charon Plainsmen, or Chacks. One or two wore dry-town shirt-cloaks, and I even thought I saw an Earthman in the crowd, though I was never sure, and I fervently hoped not. They were squatting around small crescent-shaped tables, and all intently gazing at a flickery spot of light at the front of the cellar. I saw an empty place at one table and dropped there, finding the floor soft as if cushioned. On each table small smudging pastilles were burning, and from these cones of ash-tipped fire came the steamy, swimmy smoke that filled the darkness with strange colours. Beside me an immature chat girl was kneeling, her fettered hands strained tightly back at her sides, her naked breasts pierced for jewelled rings. Beneath the pallid fur around her pointed ears the exquisite animal face was quite mad. She whispered to me, but her dialect was so thick that I could follow only a few words and would just as soon not have heard those few. An older chack grunted for silence, and she subsided, swaying and crooning. There were cups and decanters on all the tables, and a woman tilted pale phosphorescent fluid into a cup and offered it to me. I took one sip, then another. It was cold and pleasantly tart, and not until the second swallow turned sweet on my tongue did I know what I tasted. I pretended to swallow while the woman's eyes were fixed on me, then somehow contrived to spill the filthy stuff down my shirt. I was wary, even, of the fumes, but there was nothing else I could do. The stuff was Shalavan, outlawed on every planet in the Terran Empire, and every halfway decent planet outside it. More and more figures, men and creatures, kept crowding into the cellar, which was not very large. The place looked like the worst nightmare of a drug-dreamer, 
ablaze with the colours of the smoking incense, the swaying crowd and their monotonous cries. Quite suddenly there was a blaze of purple light, and someone screamed in raving ecstasy, Naki na nebran, nahai kamaina! Kamaina! shrilled the tranced mob. An old man jumped up and started haranguing the crowd. I could just follow his dialect. He was talking about terror. He was talking about riots. He was jabbering mystical gibberish which I couldn't understand, and didn't want to understand, and rabble-rousing anti-Terran propaganda which I understood much too well. Another blaze of lights, and a long scream in chorus, Kamaina! Everin stood in the blaze of many-coloured light. The toy-maker, as I had seen him last, cat-smooth, gracefully alien, shrouded in a ripple of giddy crimsons. Behind him was a blackness. I waited till the painful blaze of lights abated, then, straining my eyes to see past him, I got my worst shock. A woman stood there, naked to the waist, her hands ritually fettered with little chains that stirred and clashed musically as she moved, stiff-legged in a frozen dream. Hair like black grass banded her brow and naked shoulders, and her eyes were crimson. And the eyes lived in the dread, dreaming face. They lived, and they were mad with terror, although the lips curved in a gently tranced smile. Maylin. Everin was speaking in that dialect I barely understood. His arms were flung high, and his cloak went spilling away from them, rippling like something alive. The jammed humans and non-humans swayed and chanted, and he swayed above them like an iridescent bug, weaving arms rippling back and forth, back and forth. I strained to catch his words. Our world. An old world. Kamayina, whimpered the shrill chorus. Humans, humans, all humans would make slaves of us all, all save the children of the ape. I lost the thread for a moment, true. The Terran Empire has one small blind spot in otherwise sane policy, ignoring that non-human and human have lived placidly here for millennia. They placidly assume that humans were, everywhere, the dominant race, as on Earth itself. The toymaker's weaving arms went on spinning, spinning. I rubbed my eyes to clear them of shalavan and incense. I hoped that what I saw was an illusion of the drug. Something, something huge and dark, was hovering over the girl. She stood placidly, hands clasped on her chains, but her eyes writhed in the frozen calm of her face. Then something, I can only call it a sixth sense, bore it on me that there was someone outside the door. I was perhaps the only creature there, except for Everin, not drugged with Shalavan, and perhaps that's all it was. But during the days in the Secret Service I'd had to develop some extra senses. Five just weren't enough for survival. I knew somebody was fixing to break down that door, and I had a good idea why. I had been followed by the Legate's orders, and tracking me here they'd gone away and brought back reinforcements. Someone struck a blow on the door, and a stentorian voice bawled, Open up there, in the name of the Empire! The chanting broke in ragged quavers. Everin stopped. Somewhere a woman screamed. The lights abruptly went out, and a stampede started in the room. Women struck me with chains. Men kicked. There were shrieks and howls. I thrust my way forward, 
butting with elbows and knees and shoulders. A dusky emptiness yawned, and I got a glimpse of sunlight and open sky, and knew that Everin had stepped through into somewhere and was gone. The banging on the door sounded like a whole regiment of space force out there. I dived toward the shimmer of little stars which marked Melin's tiara in the darkness, braving the black horror hovering above her, and touched rigid girl flesh, cold as death. I grabbed her and ducked sideways. This time it wasn't intuition. Nine times out of ten, anyway. Intuition is just a mental shortcut which adds up all the things which your subconscious has noticed while you were busy thinking about something else. Every native building on Wolf had concealed entrances and exits, and I knew where to look for them. This one was exactly where I expected. I pushed at it and found myself in a long, dim corridor. The head of a woman peered from an opening door. She saw Maylin's limp body hanging on my arm, and her mouth widened in a silent scream. Then the head popped back out of sight, and a door slammed. I heard the bolt slide. I ran for the end of the hall, the girl in my arms, thinking that this was where I came in as far as Maylin was concerned, and wondering why I bothered. The door opened on a dark, peaceful street. One lonely moon was setting beyond the rooftops. I set Maylin on her feet, but she moaned and crumpled against me. I put my shirt-cloak round her bare shoulders. Judging by the noises and yells, we'd gotten out just in time. No one came out the exit behind us. Either the Space Force had plugged it, or, more likely, everyone else in the cellar had been too muddled by drugs to know what was going on. But it was only a few minutes, I knew, before Space Force would check the whole building for concealed escape holes. Suddenly, and irrelevantly, I found myself thinking of a day not too long ago, when I'd stood up in front of a unit in training of Space Force. Introduced to them as an intelligence expert on native towns, and solemnly warned them about concealed exits and entrances. I wondered, for half a minute, if it might not be simpler just to wait here and let them pick me up. Then I hoisted Malin across my shoulders. She was heavier than she looked, and after a minute, half-conscious, she began to struggle and moan. There was a chack-run cookshop down the street, a place I'd once known well, with an evil reputation and worse food, but it was quiet and stayed open all night. I turned in at the door, bending at the low lintel. The place was smoke-filled and foul-smelling. I dumped Melin on a couch, and sent the frowsy waiter for two bowls of noodles and coffee, handed him a few extra coins, and told him to leave us alone. He probably drew the worst possible inference. I saw his muzzle twitch at the smell of Chalavan, but it was that kind of place anyhow. He drew down the shutters and went. I stared at the unconscious girl then shrugged and started on the noodles. My own head was still swimmy with the fumes, incense and drug, and I wanted it clear. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I had Everin's right-hand girl and I was going to use her. The noodles were greasy and had a curious taste, but they were hot, and I ate all of one bowl before Malin stirred and whimpered and put up one hand with a little clinking of chains to her hair. The gesture was indefinably reminiscent of Dalisa, and for the first time I saw the likeness between them. It made me wary, and yet curiously softened. Finding she could not move freely, she rolled over, sat up, and stared around in growing bewilderment and dismay. There was a sort of riot, I said. I got you out. Everin ditched you, 
and you can quit thinking what you're thinking. I put my shirt cloak on you because you were bare to the waist, and it didn't look so good. I stopped to think that over, and amended. I mean, I couldn't haul you around the streets that way. It looked good enough. To my surprise, she gave a shaky little giggle, and held out her fettered hands. Will you? I broke her links and freed her. She rubbed her wrists as if they hurt her, then drew up her draperies, pinned them so that she was decently covered, and tossed back my shirt-cloak. Her eyes were wide and soft in the light of the flickering stub of candle. "'Oh, Raquel,' she sighed, "'when I saw you there!' She sat up, clasping her hands together, and when she continued, her voice was curiously cold and controlled for anyone so childish. It was almost as cold as Dallas's. If you've come from Kiral, I'm not going back. I'll never go back, and you may as well know it. I don't come from Kiral, and I don't care where you go. I don't care what you do. I suddenly realized that the last statement was wholly untrue, and to cover my confusion I shoved the remaining bowl of noodles at her. Eat. She wrinkled her nose in fastidious disgust. I'm not hungry. Eat it anyway. You're still half-doped, and the food will clear your head. I picked up one mug of the coffee, and drained it at a single swallow. What were you doing in that disgusting den? Without warning, she flung herself across the table at me, throwing her arms round my neck. Startled, I let her cling a moment, then reached up and firmly unfastened her hands. None of that now. I fell for it once, and it landed me in the middle of the mud pie. But her fingers bit my shoulder. Rakal, Rakal, I tried to get away and find you. Have you still got the bird? You haven't set it off yet. Oh, don't, 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 Rakal. You don't know what Everin is. You don't know what he's doing. The words spilled out of her like floodwaters. He's won so many of you. Don't let him have you too, Rakal. They call you an honest man. You worked once for terror. The Terrans would believe you if you went to them and told them what he... Rakal, take me to the Terran zone. Take me there. Take me where they'll protect me from Everin. At first I tried to stop her, question her, then waited and let the torrent of entreaty run on and on. At last, exhausted and breathless, she lay quietly against my shoulder, her head fallen forward. The musty reek of Shalavan mingled with the flower scent of her hair. Kid... I said heavily at last. You and your toy-maker have both got me wrong. I'm not Rakal Sensar. You're not? She drew back, regarding me in dismay. Her eyes searched every inch of me, from the grey streak across my forehead to the scar running down into my collar. Then who race Cargill? Terran intelligence. She stared, her mouth wide like a child's. Then she laughed. She laughed! At first I thought she was hysterical. I stared at her in consternation. Then, as her wide eyes met mine, with all the mischief of the non-human which was mingled into the human here, all the circular complexities of wolfy logic behind the woman in them, I started to laugh too. I threw back my head and roared, until we were clinging together and gasping with mirth like a pair of raving fools. The chack waiter came to the door and stared at us, and I roared, Get the hell out! between spasms of crazy laughter. Then she was wiping her face, tears of mirth still dripping down her cheeks, 
and I was frowning bleakly into the empty bowls. Cargill, she said hesitantly, you can take me to the Terrans where Rakal hell's bells, I exploded. I can't take you anywhere, girl. I've got to find Rakal. I stopped in mid-sentence, and looked at her clearly for the first time. Child, I'll see that you're protected if I can, but I'm afraid you've walked from the trap to the cookpot. There isn't a house in Charon that will hold me. Been thrown out twice today. She nodded. I don't know how the word spreads, but it happens in non-human parts. I think they can see trouble written in a human face, or smell it in the wind. She fell silent, her face propped sleepily between her hands, her hair falling in tangles. I took one of her hands in mine and turned it over. It was a fine hand, with bird-like bones and soft rose-tinted nails, but the lines and hardened places around the knuckles reminded me that she, too, came from the cold austerity of the salt dry towns. After a moment she flushed and drew her hand from mine. "'What are you thinking, Cargill?' she asked, and for the first time I heard her voice sobered, without the coquetry, which must, after all, have been a very thin veneer. I answered her simply and literally. "'I'm thinking of Dallisa. I thought you were very different, and yet I see that you are very like her.' I thought she would question what I knew of her sister, but she let it pass in silence. After a time she said, Yes, we were twins. Then, after a long silence, she added, But she was always much the older. And that was all I ever knew of whatever obscure pressures had shaped Dallisa into an austere and tragic Clytemnestra, and Malin into a pixie runaway. Outside the drawn shutters dawn was brightening. Malin shivered, drawing her thin draperies round her bare throat. I glanced at the little rim of jewels that starred her hair, and said, "'You'd better take those off and hide them. They alone would be enough to have you hauled into an alley and strangled in this part of Charon.' I hauled the bird toy from my pocket, and slapped it on the greasy table, still wrapped in its silk. "'I don't suppose you know which of us this thing is set to kill?' "'I know nothing about the toys.' You seem to know plenty about the toy-maker. I thought so, until last night. I looked at the rigid, clamped mouth, and thought that if she were really as soft and as delicate as she looked, she would have wept. Then she struck her small hand on the tabletop and burst out, It's not a religion! It isn't even an honest movement for freedom! It's a... a front for smuggling and drugs and... and every other filthy thing! Believe it or not, when I left Shainsar, I thought Nebran was the answer to the way the Terrans were strangling us. Now I know there are worse things on Wolf than the Terran Empire. I've heard of Rakal Sensar, and whatever you may think of Rakal, he's too decent to be mixed up in anything like this. Suppose you tell me what's really going on, I suggested. She couldn't add much to what I knew already, but the last fragments of the pattern were beginning to settle into place. Rakal seeking the matter-transmitter and some key to the non-human sciences of Wolf, I knew now what the City of the Silent Ones had reminded me of, had somehow crossed the path of the toy-maker. Everin's words now made sense. You were clever at evading our surveillance for a while. Possibly, though I'd never know, Quinn had been keeping one foot in each camp, working for Kiral and for Everin. The toy-maker, knowing of Rakal's anti-Terran activities, had believed he would make a valuable ally, 
and had taken steps to secure his help. Julie herself had given me the clue. He smashed Rindy's toys. Out of the context it sounded like the work of a madman. Now, having encountered Everin's workshop, it made plain good sense. And I think I had known all along that Rakal could not have been playing Everin's game. He might have turned against terror, though now I was beginning to even doubt that, and certainly he'd have killed me if he found me. But he would have done it himself, and without malice. Killed without malice, that doesn't make sense in any of the languages of terror. But it made sense to me. Maylin had finished her brief recitation and was drowsing, her head pillowed on the table. The reddish light was growing, and I realized that I was waiting for dawn as, days ago, I had waited for sunset in Shinsa, with every nerve stretched to the breaking point. It was dawn of the third morning, and this bird lying on the table before me must fly, or far away in the Khasa, another would fly at Julie. I said, there's some distance limitation on this one, I understand, since I have to be fairly near its object. If I lock it in a steel box and drop it in the desert, I'll guarantee it won't bother anybody. I don't suppose you'd have a shot at stealing the other one for me? She raised her head, eyes flashing. Why should you worry about Rakal's wife? she flared. And for no good reason it occurred to me that she was jealous. I might have known Everin wouldn't shoot in the dark. Rakal's wife, that earthwoman, what do you care for her? It seemed important to set her straight. I explained that Julie was my sister, and saw a little of the tension fade from her face, but not all. Remembering the custom of the dry towns, I was not wholly surprised when she added, jealously, When I heard of your feud, I guessed it was over that woman. But not in the way you think, I said. Julie had been part of it, certainly. Even then, I had not wanted her to turn her back on her world. But if Rakal had remained with terror, I would have accepted his marriage to Julie. Accepted it, I'd have rejoiced. God knows we'd been closer than brothers, those years in the dry towns. And then, before Malin's flashing eyes, I suddenly faced my secret hate, my secret fear. No. The quarrel had not been all Rakal's doing. He had not turned his back, unexplained on terror. In some unrecognized fashion, I had done my best to drive him away. And when he had gone, I had banished a part of myself as well, and thought I could end the struggle by saying it didn't exist. And now, facing what I had done to all of us, I knew that my revenge, so long sought, so dearly cherished, must be abandoned. We still have to deal with the bird, I said. It's a gamble, with all the cards wild. I could dismantle it, and trust to luck that Wolf Illogic didn't include a tamper mechanism, but that didn't seem worth the risk. First, I've got to find Rakal. If I set the bird free, and it killed him, it wouldn't settle anything. For I could not kill Rakal. Not now because I knew life would be a worse punishment than death, but because if I knew it now. If Rakal died, Julie would die too. And if I killed him, I'd be killing the best part of myself. Somehow Rakal and I must strike a balance between our two worlds and try to build a new one from them. 
and I can't sit here and talk any longer. I haven't time to take you... I stopped, remembering the spaceport cafe at the edge of the Khasa. There was a street shrine or matter transmitter right there, across the street from the Terran HQ. All these years. You know your way in the transmitters. You can go there in a second or two. She could warn Julie. Tell Magnuson. But when I suggested this, giving her a password that would take her straight to the top, she turned white. All jumps have to be made through the Master Shrine. I stopped and thought about that. Where is Everin likely to be, right now? She gave a nervous shudder. He's everywhere. Rubbish. He's not omniscient. Why, you little fool, he didn't even recognize me. He thought I was Rakal. I wasn't too sure myself, but Malin needed reassurance. Or take me to the Master Shrine. I can find Rakal in that scanning device of Everin's. I saw refusal in her face and pushed on. If Everin's there, I'll prove he's fallible enough with a skein in his throat. And here, I thrust the toy into her hand. Hang on to this, will you? She put it matter-of-factly into her draperies. I don't mind that, but to the shrine. Her voice quivered, and I stood up and pushed at the table. Let's get going. Where's the nearest street shrine? No, no. Oh, I don't dare. You've got to. I saw the chack who owned the place edging round the door again and said, There's no use arguing, Maylin. When she had readjusted her robes a little while ago, she had pinned them so that the flat sprawl of the neighboring embroideries were over her breasts. I put a finger against them, not in a sensuous gesture, and said, The minute they see these, they'll throw us out of here, too. If you knew what I know of Nebron, you wouldn't want me to go near the Master Shrine again. There was that faint coquettishness in her sideways smile, and suddenly I realized that I didn't want her to. But she was not Dalissa, and she could not sit in cold dignity while her world fell into ruin. Melin must fight for the one she wanted. And then some of that primitive male hostility which lives in every man came to the surface, and I gripped her arm until she whimpered. Then I said, in the shane-san which still comes to my tongue when moved or angry, "'Damn it! You're going! Have you forgotten that if it weren't for me you'd have been torn to pieces by that raving mob, or something worse?' That did it. She pulled away, and I saw again, beneath the veneer of petulant coquetry, that fierce and untamable insolence of the dry-towner. The more fierce and arrogant in this girl, because she had burst her fettered hands free and shaken off the ruin of the past. I was seized with a wildly inappropriate desire to seize her, crush her in my arms, taste the red honey of that teasing mouth. The effort of mastering the impulse made me rough. I shoved at her and said, Come on! Let's get there before Everin does. End of chapter 13